Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 3rd, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Back from a rather, another rather lengthy road trip, we um, prepared this program in, in haste this afternoon. I even overslept today. We didn't get back from Shelbyville and from Bristol, Tennessee until practically midnight last night. It was a long drive from Bristol in one day. I don't like to do that, but sometimes I just have to. I had to wake up here at home today so that I could prepare this this presentation. Tonight we will just we will present special notices to all who deny two seed line part 21. Next Friday, I hope to commence with Paul's second epistle to Timothy, which will probably take several weeks. Last week, our program was pre-recorded, and I must apologize that a file error prevented it from playing on our first stream. But we have four streams on which we play our live programs, and according to our logs... The recording had played just fine on the other three streams. So I apologize to the people who complained that they listened to the introductory music and never heard the podcast. But I wish they had tried switching to another stream because they would have heard it. And that is one reason why we have four streams, just in case one of them happens to fail. As much as we do this, On a tight budget and with a staff of one, there are bound to be some failures. So that's all I could say about that. I think the Saturday program last week played on all four streams. Author Lee's program. So my wife Melissa and I were at Shelbyville, Tennessee for the White Lives Matter Rally last weekend. And I hope to discuss that at length here tomorrow evening. But for now, I will explain just one of the things that happened to us last Friday evening. But I cannot promise that I won't repeat it tomorrow when I discuss the rally and the weekend itself. I may indeed repeat myself, hoping to get this message to a wider audience, because I'm sure that typically more people will listen to that program than to this one. God forbid people listen to a Bible study. Here lies the danger of ecumenism. That even when disparate groups seem to have the same objectives, if they have different foundational beliefs, they will also have radically different views regarding the execution and the fulfillment of those objectives. And there will ultimately be dissension and discord. I do not remember how the debate started, probably my big mouth, but I met a young man from the traditional workers party who was arguing with me in defense of Negroes. I found it difficult to believe that anyone would argue in defense of Negroes at a White Lives Matter rally. But that was what he was doing. He believes 
that Yahweh our God created Negroes. And that Negroes were men, but or are men, I guess, but only a little different from us. Men who could even choose to come to Christ and be saved, as he had put it. And this is the failure of traditionalism. But it is also the failure of the kinist movement, which is a sort of obscure, semi-Christian racialism that is blended together with Calvinism. Paul of Tarsus had said in his epistle to the Ephesians, in chapter 4, that there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And of course, by saying all, Paul did not necessarily mean what we may think he meant. All of what? We might have all of one thing in mind, but Paul of Tarsus probably had all of something different in mind. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 2, Paul had explained that the purpose of Christ was to reconcile his people into one body. So, ostensibly, he was only speaking in chapter 4 of all of his people and nobody else. Writing a short time later, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul advised his readers to let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Well, not for nothing, I sure as hell wouldn't be thankful for being with one body with a nigger. That calling was, of course, only for the scattered children of Israel. And the whole purpose of our Christian identity endeavor is to identify and to prove who they are. A task which we have accomplished many times over. But traditionalism refuses to acknowledge our identity. And it conflicts with much of the scriptures. This racial form of traditionalism such as the variety which is found in kinism or in the professions of this traditional workers' party is even worse. It conflicts with much of the scriptures and it attempts to define many bodies of Christ. They promote segregation and nationalism, which are of course good, but still they insist that other races can somehow be Christian which in essence promotes the idea that they may that there may somehow be many distinct bodies of Christ all separate one from the other again speaking of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul said for the body is not one member but many and now are they many members yet but one body. So if one believes that a Negro may somehow be a Christian, 
How can one keep that Negro from the rest of the body of Christ? To attempt such a thing would be a direct contradiction to Scripture, as Paul said later in that same chapter, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. So if one wants to believe that a Negro can be a Christian, then one must insist that white Christians must have the same care for Negroes than they have for their fellow whites. So why the hell are we white nationalists in the first place? It makes no sense. Inevitably, the next step is to have Negroes in the bedrooms of your children. That's the next step. Once you admit a nigger into your Christian congregation, you have no moral basis to keep him out of your daughter's bedroom. This is universalism by the back door, as we have termed it in the past. We must reject this sort of universalism because it is not only void from scripture it is also destructive to our objectives and more importantly it is destructive to our race an honest examination of Genesis reveals that Yahweh God takes credit for having created only one race the race of Adam and the list of Adam's descendants in Genesis chapter 10 were all originally white as both history and archaeology can reveal there are no niggers in Genesis chapter 10 the scattered children of Israel were a portion of this wider white race and to them it was promised that the earth would be delivered we white Europeans are that portion, for the most part. And that, too, is established in our historical studies. Where, where there are many proofs of that fact. But we could also prove from Scripture that there are other races here, consisting of many nations, which Yahweh our God did not plan. They're called goat nations. And which Yahweh our God never took any credit for having created. These are corruptions of his creation and eventually they shall all be rooted up. But these people in the traditional workers party really do not care about the details of scripture. They only care about their orthodoxy. Which is actually an orthodoxy of Roman and Byzantine imperialism but it has never been an orthodoxy of Christ this young man from Heimbach's group tried to tell me that Negroes bore the so-called curse of Ham curse of Ham I never saw that in Genesis so I informed him that Ham was never cursed and that ignited in him a series of circular arguments because he could not give me the scriptures supporting the idea that Ham was cursed. When I cited scripture 
and try to explain what really happened. He only dug himself deeper and deeper into his rabbit hole. This is no surprise because Heimbach himself has argued with some of our friends in social media threads. And he did very much the same thing. Defending niggers and responding in memes and refusing to actually discuss the scripture. The truth is that Negroes cannot be Christians and Negroes were not really a part of ancient society at all. Sure, there were some mulattoes in Egypt who are described or pictured in Roman art, but their presence does not justify their existence any more than the mongrels inhabiting American cities today. Those mulattoes were the result of the ancient Nubian invasions of Egypt, and today we are being invaded in a different manner. Christianity is a renewed covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, Hebrews chapter 8, Luke chapter 1. Christianity is a renewed covenant between Yahweh our God and us white Europeans who are his particular race of people. The Judeans, the Scythians, the barbarians, and the Greeks, which Paul had said were called into one calling in Colossians, in that same chapter, were all different branches of that same race, as they were dispersed in ancient times. They can all be traced back to ancient Israel. Language used in Paul's epistles proves that assertion in many places. For that reason, Paul constantly spoke of reconciliation and of the promises to the fathers. If the fathers aren't your fathers, what part do you have in their promises? And Paul said in Acts chapter 26 that now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise God made unto our fathers. Under which promise? Our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. The promise in Christ was for twelve tribes and for nobody else. Every war, every action, every event in history has a context and reasons behind it. Having specific conditions which led to the circumstances by which it came. Christian identity recognizes that and presents Christianity to the people who were the subjects of those promises within the historical context of Scripture. But Orthodox traditionalism presents Christianity to all people within the context of Roman imperialism and universalism. If we are to survive as a race, only Christian identity provides the foundation we need and supplies the proper moral reasons to exclude the aliens who are destroying our race. 
the world we fight against was created by Eastern and Catholic Orthodoxy for the most part and that is the world we should want to destroy so how can we embrace it when it has always worked against us traditionalism is a failure and it fails because it is opposed to scripture and to the truth of our God Yahweh is the God of Israel as Christ himself had professed and Israel is reckoned by tribes from Genesis through the Revelation all the way through the Revelation so if you don't believe that whites are Israel you're screwed Yahweh is not the God of strangers and Christ came to fulfill the promises made to the fathers all of which had nothing to do with strangers and especially with niggers with this we shall begin our presentation of Clifton A. Emmeheiser's special notice to all who deny to sea line part 21 where Clifton actually departed from his usual introduction for the series where he appropriately and continually warned of the racial war that we have already been embroiled in for the last 7,000 years. So now he begins. It is highly important that we continue to pursue the subject of two seed line as taught in Genesis 3.15. The word seed in that verse is the same for the serpent as it is for the woman. Doggedly, the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, are insistent on interpreting the seed of the woman as physical, while rendering the seed of the serpent as spiritual. Yet seed, in both cases, is the same Hebrew word, 2233, the word zerah. This is taking liberty with Yahweh's word beyond all logical reason and is highly unethical and inconsistent. Actually, as we had seen earlier on in this series, some of the anti-seed liners, such as Ted Wyland, insist that the seed of the serpent is physical while the seed of the woman is spiritual. That is because Wyland had said that the seed of the serpent is the flesh while the seed of the woman is the spirit. But either way they twist it, Clifton's explanation holds true. If one of these seeds is physical, then so is the other, and they cannot have it both ways. So Clifton continues. This is the very same word as the seed promised to Abraham in Genesis 22:17. And it can only mean physical seed. There is a threefold use of the word seed in Scripture agricultural, physiological, and figurative. A man's seed, or emission of semen, is a physiological use of the term derived in Scripture from the Hebrew zerah and the Greek word sperma or sporos and I believe sporos might only be on one occasion where Peter actually made a reference to parentage in his 
first epistle. Be born of incorruptible parentage. Parentage of the Adamic race. Where sperma was a Greek word for seed that had the meaning of offspring. Sporos refers instead to parentage. Clifton says, Thus Zerah, in Genesis 3.15, for the serpent, can only mean the Zerah or sperma of the serpent, that is, his offspring. Any other interpretation does violence to Yahweh's word in that passage. Insight on the Scriptures, Volume 2, page 877 says, under the subheading, The Seed of the Serpent, Jesus identified the Jewish, it should be Judean, the Jewish religious leaders of his day as a part of the serpent's seed, saying to them, serpents, offspring of vipers, that word offspring being the Greek word genemata, which means generated one, or generated ones in the plural. Serpents, offspring of vipers, how are you to flee from the judgment of Gehenna? And that's not Sheol or Hades. Gehenna is simply a term used to allegorically represent the fiery trials of this world. Gehenna being the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament, where the ancient Israelites had sacrificed their young to idols. And from what I understand, the same land was used to burn rubbish in Roman Judea. That's the story I get from the books anyway. A child of Yahweh being subject to the fires of Gehenna, the judgment of Gehenna, his spirit would live in the day of Christ. A child of the devil, or a bastard, being subject to the same, would be destroyed, being twice dead, as the Apostle Jude explained it. The folly of Ted Wyland is a failure to recognize that the serpent seed is entirely distinct from a woman's seed, along with his refusal to understand that the devil sowed one and Christ sowed the, sowed the other, as Joshua explained in the parable of the wheat and the tares, and of course the other seed liners, the other, I'm sorry, anti-seed liners make the same mistakes. This is so incredibly simple that a child could understand it, that the wheat were the children, the legitimate children of the woman, and the tares were sown by that serpent in Genesis chapter 3. The devil who sowed the bad seed, who sowed the tares at the beginning of the world. This is so incredibly simple that a child could understand it, if only we accept the natural meanings of the terms. Ted Wyland cannot possibly be so stupid, so we can only imagine that he is being purposely deceptive 
<coughs> Again, Clifton continues, Today we live in a world controlled by this enemy, and we are losing our war to him. This enemy has full command over the political, economic, and religious aspects of our lives. He is using all of these tools in an attempt to destroy the white Israel race. Therefore, it would be tremendously irresponsible on the part of those who understand the nature of the enemy to sit idly by saying nothing. This situation is serious enough in itself without having distractors on the sidelines playing theology games while our very existence is at stake. And this also reflects the failure of those who cling to traditional so-called orthodoxy, and even those who think that they can find apostolic Christianity in the writings of the so-called church fathers. The enemies of Christ have very much been in control of the media, the book publishing ventures, which have been within the provenance of professional scribes and merchants for thousands of years. They corrupted parts of the Old Testament by the time of Jeremiah, 2,600 years ago, as the prophet attests where it is written, How will you say, We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? In vain have the scribes used a false pen, meaning that they did it purposely. That's Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, from Brenton's Septuagint. The works of the early Christian writers which survive to us are those which the early imperialist church, the church from the time of Eusebius, found the most tolerable and worthwhile to maintain. Many other writings of early Christians have been lost, even of those which are familiar to us, and, as we now say, memory hold. They've been memory hold. Because they were not tolerable to Byzantine or Roman church imperialism. While the writings that survived have much merit, they cannot be used to formulate or even to support doctrine. Doctrine must come from the word of God, from the prophets and the gospels and from the apostles of Christ, and not from the traditions or interpretations of men. Clifton continues, I have already completed 20 special notices to all who deny two seed line, and I will write another 20 should it be necessary. And actually, Clifton ended the series with 24. This time, we will key in on a spurious statement made by Stephen E. Jones in his book, The Babylonian Connection, on page 96. In my estimation, meaning in Clifton's estimation, but it's probably close, he has done more damage to the Israel identity message than anyone I'm aware of, though there are several others vying to overtake and surpass him for that position. There's a whole posse of these insane clowns. This is what he said, quoting Jones. It should be obvious that the woman was the mother of both Cain and Abel. They were not two fathers. Furthermore, seed, 
the power of procreation, is a physical thing, and outside of God alone, only physical. Fleshly beings have seed and can reproduce sexually. Satan is supposedly a spirit being, like the angels in heaven, which neither marry nor are given in marriage. Citing Luke chapter 20, verses 34 through 36. And before getting into Clifton's response, I would immediately protest that, as it is explained in Revelation chapter 12, the serpent was a fallen angel, and his place was found no more in heaven. He was therefore not a spirit being, but a physical being with a physical body, just like the Satan of Job, who was admitted, who had admitted that he had come from going to and forth in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Why does Jones fail to interpret Genesis chapter 3 with the information provided by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 13 or Revelation chapter 12? It may only be imagined that he too has an agenda. Clifton responds to Jones and he says now if one is only a surface reader of the Bible like many are he will accept this remark by Jones without caution if you have this book by Jones you will notice that he didn't go into any depth on that passage first of all this subject can be found in three of the Gospels at Matthew chapter 22 Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20 Therefore, it is necessary to study all three for a full comprehension of the topic. And Clifton will offer that shortly. By not doing this, Jones, by sleight of hand, was able to change the thrust of that passage. The reason for understanding this subterfuge by Jones is because the future of our children depends on it. Otherwise, you can only look forward to having some biblical mamsers in your family tree. My intention is to protect your children from that kind of danger. The usual reward for doing this is to be scoffed at by the Judeo-unchristian community and ridiculed by the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, many of which, like Jones, also teach universalism. Let's now read these three passages. And we will read the three passages that Clifton provides here. Even though they repeat each other, that's okay. We want to see the subtle differences. Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 30. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. 
Likewise, the second also, and the third under the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Next, Clifton cites Mark chapter 12 from verse 18. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother dies, and leaves his wife behind him, and leaves no children, that his brother should take his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall arise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, neither they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. It's, um, if, if we really pay attention to this parable, it's pretty clear that, to me, it reflects the degenerate Jewish mind. In order to make the example, the man didn't have to have seven, se- the, the woman didn't have to have seven husbands. The man didn't have to have six brothers. The same example would be just as legitimate with only one brother, the woman having only two of them for a husband. And the question is just as legitimate. The Jews have to make it a gang rape. Luke chapter 20 from verse 27. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which denied that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, that his brother should take his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her to wife, and he died childless, and the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Jewish sex fantasy. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Clifton says, we can make two observations from these passages. The words seed, issue, and children are used interchangeably throughout, 
And that is the way it should be interpreted in Genesis 3.15. Although there are three Greek words used, the context remains the same. Meaning, seed, issue, and children. Or the Greek words translated that way. And two, the second observation. You will notice that I underlined, and Clifton did in his original paper, underline the phrases as the angels of God in heaven, or the angels which are in heaven, and for they are equal unto the angels in these passages. It is obvious it is referring to the angels who did not confederate themselves with Satan in his rebellion described in Revelation chapter 12. Why is that obvious? Because Satan in Revelation chapter 12 is that old serpent in Genesis chapter 3. There's no way around that. It is very important we separate the angels who remained faithful to the Almighty from those who fell. Those angels who remained faithful would still be in heaven. This is an important little detail Stephen E. Jones elected to ignore. You will notice he chose to quote the passage where it said, For they are equal unto the angels. This is the height of intellectual dishonesty. So Clifton believes that Jones chose Luke purposely, ignoring the version in Matthew and Mark where Christ qualified that word angels adding the phrase in heaven. Long ago we wrote a paper titled On Biblical Exegesis. The main assertion of the paper is that the Old Testament must be interpreted through the lens, so to speak, of the New Testament. This is because first the Old Testament was corrupt. And Christ understood those corruptions, being God incarnate. But he did not come in order to give us academic explanations of the text. Rather, he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Therefore, we must understand that what he said when he made that assertion, what he said elsewhere in the Gospels and in the Revelation, And we must understand the Old Testament according to that. But Stephen Jones shows no understanding of that simple concept and would rather interpret the Old Testament for himself by his own means rather than by the means which Christ had provided for us. Now Clifton continues under the subtitle what these passages really mean. And he says that fortunately, these portions of scripture are not problematic or controversial in nature. Of these passages, all of my 16 various Bible commentaries, I think Clifton has a lot more now, convey pretty much the same general opinion. Therefore, because they are very similar, In essence, when I am quoting one, I am quoting from them all. Also, because the story is the same in all three Gospels, the commentary from one passage will correspond with the others. 
Therefore, I will use the commentary which explains this story best. From the King James Bible Commentary on page 1219. We read the following on Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 29. And unfortunately, Clifton didn't give us the publisher of this King James Bible commentary. Perhaps I will, after I have unpacked and sorted all of his books, perhaps I will be able to locate it and add the publisher in a comment to this paper, to this presentation, in the text. Clifton now quotes his King James Bible commentary, and he says, The Sadducees made the next attempt to discredit Jesus, and were even more severely humiliated. As the liberal party within 1st century A.D. Judaism, they rejected belief in the supernatural, especially angels and the resurrection of the dead. And they have a parenthetical remark referring us to Paul's encounter in Acts chapter 23 verse 8 and there Luke explains the very same thing that we've just heard. Josephus also explains this same thing of the Sadducees and stands as an excellent second witness to what Luke says about them in the book of Acts. Clifton's citation continues Moses said is a reference to Deuteronomy 25.5, where the practice of levirate marriage called for an unmarried brother to take his widowed brother's wife to be his own, giving an example at Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. And that's the story of Judah with his sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. This ancient practice was recognized by the Judeans, they have Jews, it should be Judeans, but rarely followed in those days, meaning in New Testament times. The absurd hypothetical case which follows, meaning the example the Sadducees present of the seven brothers with the one woman, represents another theological dilemma this time attempting to discredit the legitimacy of the resurrection, which the Sadducees rejected. Thus their question, whose wife shall she be? This extreme example must have been thought of by them to be the ultimate proof of the foolishness of this doctrine. All seven brothers had been married to her. Therefore, in a resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? They must have snickered, as they asked such a ridiculous question. But the smile would soon be wiped off their faces by Jesus' reply. I would rather say Yahshua, but I have to remain somewhat faithful to the text. Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures. Jesus had extreme contempt for the Sadducees, because they made light of the Bible and the power of God. For example, his resurrection power. This is his strongest recorded rebuke of this Jewish party. And actually it was a Judean party, but these probably are the most Jewish of, of these sects. Actually, it was his only rebuke of the Sadducees. 
Christ never addressed this party. Ostensibly because it was comprised of Edomites almost exclusively. On this one occasion they accosted him. But while he often addressed, preached to, and had fellowship with the Pharisees, he never sought out or addressed the Sadducees. Here, he only responded to them. He didn't seek them out. Now Clifton responds to the remarks that he cited from the commentary. And he says, this is what led up to the statement about the angels. It should be pointed out that all the anti-sea liners who also hold to the no-devil doctrine indirectly agree with the Sadducees, and they also err not knowing the scriptures. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary on page 1062 says this on Luke chapter 20 verse 34, And Jesus answering said unto them, The Sadducees had the right logic, but the wrong premise. They were assuming wrongly that the conditions in the future life would be identical with those here. Jesus asserted that in the age to come, there would be neither marriage nor death. And before continuing, let me say that Jones's error is virtually the same error as that of the Sadducees, but in the opposite direction. While the Sadducees assumed that the condition of men after the resurrection would be the same as they are here and now, Jones assumes that the fallen angels, those on earth, had existed in a condition equal to that of the angels in heaven. Both Jude and Peter describe these angels bound in chains of darkness as men who walk among us. Genesis chapter 6 proves beyond doubt that so-called fallen angels certainly can have children. So Clifton continues, The best reference on this topic that I could find comes from Peake's Commentary on the Bible on page 839 on Luke chapter 20 verses 34 and 35 and reads, In this age men marry, but in the age to come they are immortal and do not marry living forever like the angels. And they refer to, to 1 Enoch, chapter 15, from verse 6. Luke corrects Mark's apparent implication that all these sons of this age will attain the resurrection life. It is very unlikely that Luke's change in Mark's wording implies a view that men are fitted by celibacy in this life to attain the age to come. Marriage is considered in this passage solely from the point of view of legal relationship and the procreation of children. We would say lawful relationship, lawful in the eyes of God. No conclusion can be drawn from it concerning the character of Christian marriage. And while this is good, it is my opinion that this commentary has also created straw man arguments, reading ideas into the passage which are not necessarily there in order to discredit them. Neither is it necessary to think that Luke somehow corrected Mark simply because he was more precise and complete in his record.
Rather, <coughs> I'm sorry, <coughs> rather, the Gospels, all being written in a very concise manner, the accounts often complement and reinforce one another, one version frequently having greater detail than the others. Because Mark's version is more general and omitted some details, does not mean that it is wrong or expresses an understanding contrary to that of Luke. Clifton continues and he says, What I liked about this reference is that it takes us to 1 Enoch 15 verse 6, which we will read the entire chapter from 1 Enoch 1 through 10. 1 Enoch chapter 15 verses 1 through 10. And we will read it. Enoch being the initial subject. Then addressing me, he spoke, an angel who's speaking to Enoch, he spoke and said, Hear, neither be afraid, O Enoch, O righteous man, and scribe of righteousness. Approach hither and hear my voice. Go, say to the watchers of heaven, who have sent thee to pray for them, you ought to pray for men and not men for you. Wherefore have you forsaken the lofty and holy heaven, which endures forever, and have lain with women, have defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, have taken to yourselves wives, have acted like the sons of the earth, and have begotten giants? This parenthetical mark, referring us to Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 and 4. You, being spiritual, holy, and living a life which is eternal, have polluted yourselves with women, have begotten in carnal blood, have lusted in the blood of men, and have done as those who are flesh and blood do. These, however, die and perish. Therefore have I given them, given to them wives, that they might cohabit with them, that sons might be born of them, and that this might be transacted upon earth. But you from the beginning were made spiritual, living a life which is eternal, and not subject to death in all the generations of the world. Therefore I had not made wives for you, because being spiritual your dwelling is in heaven. Citing Matthew 22.30, or referring us to Matthew 22.30. Now the giants, verse 8 of 1 Enoch 15, now the giants who have been born of spirit and of flesh shall be called upon the earth evil spirits, and on earth shall be their habitation. Evil spirits shall proceed from their flesh, meaning after they die, because they were created from above. From the holy watchers was their beginning and primary foundation. Evil spirits shall they be upon earth, and the spirits of the wicked shall they be called. The habitation of the spirits of heaven shall be in heaven, but upon earth shall be the habitation of terrestrial spirits who are born in the earth. Referring us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 40. The spirits of the giant shall be like clouds which shall oppress, corrupt, fall, contend, and bruise upon the earth. They shall cause lamentation, no food shall they eat, and shall they be thirsty, they shall be concealed, and those spirits shall rise up against the sons of men, 
and against women, for they come from them during the days of slaughter and destruction. Referring us to Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 8. For my part, I must advise caution with the Ethiopic Enoch, as it has many interpolations. However, most of these ideas are indeed expressed in the portions of Enoch literature which I would accept, which are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, the scrolls are highly fragmentary. Clifton continues, and responding to this passage from Enoch, he says, From this evidence, we can clearly see that Stephen E. Jones is entirely discredited through his manipulative deception. All one need to do is read Jude to see the connection to Enoch 15. In verse 4 we read, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. In verse 6 it continues, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Verse 7 speaks of fornication, or race-mixing and going after strange flesh. Actually, verse 7 defines fornication as going after strange flesh. Verse 11 says, They have gone in the way of Cain. Did not the angels of Genesis 6 commit the same violation as Satan did with Eve? Notice the same term, clouds, as in Enoch 15 in Jude, verse 12. Notice the term wandering stars in verse 13. And remember the curse of a vagabond on Cain, that he would be a wanderer. Also notice the book of Enoch is referred to in Jude, verse 14. And here we must warn that the Ethiopic Enoch is not necessarily the same as the writings of Enoch to which Jude refers. So we should certainly not take that for granted. In my opinion, there is sufficient information preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls fragments of Enoch to perceive what the apostles were referring to without suffering the embellishments and interpolations of the Ethiopic version, which we should treat with great caution. It's a worthwhile read, just treat it with caution. Once again, continuing with Clifton, and someday I might do a podcast just on the Ethiopic Enoch. Once again, continuing with Clifton. In verses 15 to 19, notice all the evil traits of the descendants of those wicked satanic people. Then use the cross-references to each verse of Jude and expand on the subject. Then, in turn, check all the cross-references to those passages, those passages which Jude cross-references, and you will encounter a never-ending Bible study on this subject. Jones and all the other Antichrist, anti-seedliners should be ashamed. Today, America and all the other Israel nations are becoming one giant Sodom and Gomorrah, 
going after strange flesh, and Jones and company are wittingly or unwittingly aiding and abetting that satanic objective. And as we said, once we imagine that people of other races can be Christians, or once we even think of those alien bastards as people, we invite the curse of universalism. We invite it upon ourselves. The Bible does not think of alien bastards as people on the same level as the children of Israel. Clifton continues, Think of the situation from this perspective. If we two seedliners prove to be incorrect, and we are not, it would only amount to embarrassment. But if the anti-seedliners prove to be in error, and they are, the end would not only amount to embarrassment, but total racial disaster. And the same can be said for the traditionalists and all universalists. Clifton says, I am persuaded that at the judgment, Yahweh will ask the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, why did you give my enemies aid and comfort? The two seedliners should take solace in the fact that they are performing their Yahweh-given duty. If there is one single piece of biblical evidence that the false Judeans, or Jews, were and are the descendants of Cain, Matthew 23.35 and Luke 11.51 should erase all doubt where it says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel under the blood of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And Clifton asks, that's his remark, but it would be mine also. And Clifton asks, who else killed Abel but Cain? Who else was a liar and a murderer from the beginning but Satan and his offspring, Cain? Sudding John 8.44 Our Redeemer would have been highly derelict and dishonest had these charges not been true. Yet this is one of the many fantastic positions held by the anti-seedliners. And that is absolutely true. Since only Cain can be lawfully held responsible for the blood of Abel, and certainly not Seth, who was not even yet born. Who could Christ have been addressing when he held them accountable for the blood of Abel? As Clifton is saying, it would have been very unrighteous of Yahshua Christ to have held the descendants of Seth responsible for the blood of Abel or for the deeds of Cain. So there must have been descendants of Cain present whom Christ was addressing. And that is what we endeavor to prove. We have made that proof many times, but our adversaries only counter us by claiming that seed does not mean seed, that father does not mean father, and that when one man is from out of another, that that is not his son. They pervert the very language 
because they have an agenda. And that agenda is indeed a great distraction which prevents us from properly fighting our war as soldiers in Christ. We might do something like really stupid, like try to bring the gospel to niggers. In our introduction this evening, we spoke about the traditionalists and their attitude towards Negroes. The early Christian writers, those whose writings we still have, never said much about Negroes simply because Negroes were not really a part of their world. The ancient Romans did not have a nigger problem. They did not consider them. They did not consider Negroes within the context of salvation any more than they considered penguins. But some of them did write about two seed line. In fact, the late 2nd and early 3rd century writer and Christian bishop, Tertullian, had said in chapter 22 of his apology that we are instructed, moreover, by our sacred books how from certain angels who fell of their own free will there sprang a more wicked demon brood. How from certain angels who fell there sprang a more wicked demon brood condemned of God along with the authors of their race and that chief we have referred to reference to Satan it will for the present be enough however that some account is given of their work their great business is the ruin of mankind through boundless immigration through civil rights for beasts for voting privileges for Negroes or perhaps trying to bring them the gospel their great business is the ruin of mankind so from the very first spiritual wickedness sought our destruction so Tertullian certainly believed that there was a race of devils among us and that God was not the author of that race. That is exactly what we call two seed line. This, along with similar citations from other early Christian writers, I presented here in July of 2015 in a podcast titled Early Two Seed Line. Next, Clifton continues under the subtitle, Genesis 3.15 and the Avenger of Blood. Rightly does the Wycliffe Bible Commentary describe Genesis 3.15 as a blood feud on page 8. You can't have a blood feud against the Spirit, right? And Clifton has a remark concerning Genesis 3.15 that it's also called the Protevangelium, or First Gospel. Having quoted this Wycliffe observation several times in the past, I will omit it here. 
I cease to be amazed at the preposterous commentary by the Antichrist anti-seedliners on this passage. And I think there that Clifton really meant to state that he never ceases to be amazed at the lies and the deception concocted by these clowns. First of all, he says, in order to be a blood feud, it would require two kinds of blood to be involved. Secondly, the avenger of blood had to be a family member next of kin. Therefore, the only way we could look at the murder of Abel by Cain is from a kinsmanship perspective. Knowing that the Almighty would not break his own laws, we need to look at Abel's murder from a biblical legal point of view. By doing so, we can identify who the avenger of blood for Abel's murder was and continues to be. Before resolving that, we must determine whether it was accidental or deliberate homicide. Inasmuch as Yahweh confronted Cain before he committed his deed, warning him that sin croucheth at the door, it was premeditated murder, not manslaughter. Nowhere in scripture does it indicate otherwise. The question at once arises, why wasn't Cain immediately punished for his crime? Among many reasons for that, there were no witnesses to the crime. We need two or three witnesses to execute a murderer. And the avenger of blood in the person of Seth hadn't yet been born. Thus it became the responsibility of Seth and his descendants to avenge for Abel's murder. Chief among those descendants, Clifton makes a parenthetical remark, is Yahshua the Messiah, which is absolutely true. He is the ultimate avenger of the children of Israel. Therein lies the enmity for both parties of Genesis 3.15. To put this in a better light, I will quote from the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, the first volume, from page 422. Avenger of blood, and they give the Hebrew for redeemer, the word is Gaal, and for avenger of blood, Gaal Ha-Dam, or as it is transliterated by the Zondervan editors, Goel Hadam. The meaning of the verb Gael is to loose or set free or to redeem or to vindicate. That's why it could mean either avenger or redeemer. In the case of homicide, to vindicate the right of man to life, to free the land from the pollution that follows upon the spilling of blood without due cause. And of course the word Dom here, with the article Hadam, is blood. Dom meaning blood. To avenge is not to seek revenge, but to take vengeance on behalf of someone. To redress a wrong by exacting from a wrongdoer satisfaction for an offense committed. 
Continuing to quote Zondervan, Clifton writes, In the Old Testament, the Goel, that's how they transliterate the word that Strong's translates, transliterates as Gaal, G-A apostrophe A-L, they write G-O apostrophe E-L, and that's fine, it's Hebrew. In the Old Testament, the Gaal is one, usually the nearest relative, which the word Goel consequently has also come to mean, charged with vindicating justice either by redeeming family property expropriated or sold under constraint, or in the case of the Goel Hadam, the avenger of blood, avenging the unlawful slaying of a family member. The Avenger of Blood is a figure that appears in Primitive Justice. By ancient custom, it was the right, indeed the duty of persons, the nearest of kin, to avenge the slaying of a relative. This is perhaps why Cain feared for his life after slaying Abel and why Lamech justified himself in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Clifton now responds to this explanation from the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, and he says, Remember that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. Genesis 4.10 The reason it did this is because it was crying out for the avenger of blood to redeem or vindicate him. This will not be fully completed until Seth finishes his job as avenger of blood. From the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, the first volume, we read this on page 321. Avenger of blood, or redeemer of blood. The kinsman, brother or son, of a slain man who, as his redeemer, was duty-bound to claim back his life from the slayer by killing him. And they referred to the Septuagint rendering, I kiss tuon to ahima, ho I kiss tuon to ahima. I kiss tuo is a verb which means to be next of kin. The adjective I means nearest. And they define it by, He who performs the kinsman's office with regard to blood. Brenton's rendering of the passage in question, Numbers 35.19 reads, The avenger of blood, Ho I kiss to own Toahima, The avenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. Whensoever he shall meet him, he shall slay him. In other words, if somebody murdered your kin, and you're the next of kin, your obligation is to kill that person on sight. The Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible goes on to state, In societies that lack a strong central authority, the defense of private property and life is the task of the kinship group. And we must state that the that a truly Christian society would have no strong central authority, none whatsoever. Yahweh is king. The kinship group is both a defensive and an offensive unit, 
all are obliged to defend the right of any member and all are accountable for the delict or violation of the law of any member if a person is slain his kin take vengeance for him upon the slayer or on one or more of the slayer's kinship group this in turn may give rise to counterventions and a blood feud terminating at times only with the extinction of a family is set in motion a blood feud is set in motion this is exactly the story of the Bible beginning with Genesis chapter 3 the proof of the ongoing feud is found in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 23 where Christ professed that at some point a particular race of people would be accountable for the blood of Abel and all the prophets which followed. So the Bible is indeed a story of a blood feud between two families. Imagine that. Clifton, continuing, says, In biblical Israel, I'm sorry, continuing to cite his source, the interpreter's Bible. In biblical Israel, the sovereignty of the kinship group over matters affecting its private interest was just beginning to be superseded by communal authority. Biblical law still recognizes the kinsmen as responsible for prosecuting homicide, citing Numbers 35.19. And we would think that's not quite accurate, we would think that the appropriate communal authority was only an implementation of the familial kinship authority on a local scale as the family grew to become a nation and a company of nations, and that any authority that puts non-family members under the same consideration is adversarial to both family and God. Clifton now responds and he says, This should start to give you some idea of what law required in the murder of righteous Abel. I have not so much as heard or read any of the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, ever mention the avenger of blood, or applied it in the case of Cain. From the book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, by Rusus John Rushduni, he says this on page 189. In Deuteronomy 19, verses 11 through 13. Pity for a murderer in a case of premeditated murder is forbidden. No extenuating circumstances can be pleaded against the fact of murder by premeditation. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, the general law of justice is stated. The punishment must fit the crime. There must be a comparable restitution or death. Pity cannot be used to set aside justice. Therefore we are not, Clifton says, therefore we are not to feel sorry for Cain or his descendants, among which are the apostor, the impostor Judahites called Jews. For whatever divinely directed punishment they receive, we should never pity them. Never pity a Jew as he goes off to the Holocaust ovens. Speaking in the future tense, it never happened in the past tense. 
inasmuch as they are also listed among the ten Canaanite nations mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, known as Kenites. It is interesting what Rushduni says again on page 189, and quoting Rushduni once again, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 16, Pity for the evil inhabitants of Canaan was forbidden. God's pity for them and his patience had lasted for centuries. Clifton will tell us that God really didn't have pity for them. Now the time for pity was gone. It was a time for judgment and death. To this Clifton responds, To be accurate, that punishment had been pending since the murder of Abel. Not only are the descendants of Cain, the Jews, guilty of the murder of Abel, but also of the Messiah. For they said, His blood be on us and our children. Citing Matthew chapter 27 verse 25. For that, he says, the punishment must also fit the crime. And of course we would assert that there are many others among the descendants of Cain besides the Jews. And many other branches on the tree of knowledge of good and evil are awaiting a similar fate. Clifton now makes a conclusion under the subtitle Punishment for Cain was put on hold. Yes, the Israelites, when entering Canaan, were instructed to annihilate every last Canaanite to the man, including women and children, and have no pity on them. While they killed many of them, they didn't complete the job. We are told in Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, the following, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in a land wherein you dwell. The Canaanites, or what we know today as Jews, are still in all of our Israel lands, and indeed they are pricks and thorns to us. Just remember that. The next time they draw blood from you in a form of usury or income tax, or send your children off to fight in a Jewish-contrived war, just to mention a few of the ways they gouge us. From what we have contemplated in this paper, it should be obvious that it is foolish to consider Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 4.1 without taking the avenger of blood into account. The anti-seedliners totally miss this significant part of the equation. To condense it into the fewest words possible, I will quote from the concise, New Concise Bible Dictionary, edited by Derek Williams, on page 46. Under Avenger of Blood, it says, A murder's, a murder victim's next of kin had responsibility for avenging the death. He was allowed to execute the murderer, but no one else. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. The law of Moses, and Clifton corrects that to Yahweh, it is Yahweh's law, provided safety for accidental killers, if they could flee to a Levite city. This responsibility fell to Seth and his descendants, this is Clifton's words, 
This responsibility fell to Seth and his descendants. And when Deuteronomy 24.16 is correctly understood, it will be seen to be playing itself out today. I will close by saying that there are some identity Christians who actually believe that the wrath of God is limited to the Jews or was limited to the land of Canaan. They love to quote Obadiah verses 17 and 18 or I'm sorry Obadiah verses 16 through 18. But they never quote the passages before that. And I'm confusing myself again. They never quote Obadiah verses 15 and 16. I'm going to read these four verses because I've already screwed up my numbering. I'm sorry, I did this by memory at the end of my preparations. Obadiah verses 17 and 18. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob, so I should have said, they love to quote Obadiah verse 18, because it stands by itself. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them, and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. They love to quote that passage, Obadiah 18. What they don't like to quote starts in verse 15. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And of course, Mount Zion represents the children of Yahweh, the people of Israel. So the nations drinking upon his holy mountain must be the nations that Satan gathers against the children of Israel surrounding the camp of the saints in the last days. And we understand that Satan to be the international Jew who is the object of Obadiah 18. And if Obadiah 18 is not fulfilled, then we still await the fulfillment of those nations that feed off us who shall be as though they had not been. We still await the fulfillment of Obadiah's 15 and 16. They love to quote Obadiah verse 18, but they never quote Obadiah verses 15 and 16, which includes all the other strangers among us and promises their destruction as well. This is why at the return of Christ, the nations of the world are separated into two groups, not three or four or five or six or ten, into two groups, sheep and goats. These nations are sorted out by the angels of God on sight as a shepherd divides sheep and goats. How does a shepherd do that? Does he ask each individual animal, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Have you been good or have you been bad? 
No, they're separated on sight by what kind they are. And all the sheep are preserved, while all the goats are destined for the lake of fire. The same fate to be suffered by the devil and his angels. While the children of Israel were challenged to destroy all of the enemies of God who inhabited the land of Canaan, they failed, and for that reason their commission ended there. There were other Rephaim, there were other Edomites, there were other Canaanites outside of the land of Canaan. That's very clear in the historical record. But they couldn't even take care of the Canaanites in the least little place in the earth. They failed. So their commission ended there. Ultimately, because of their failure, they were bound to be scattered to the ends of the earth. They themselves were to be scattered to the ends of the earth. But the judgment of Yahweh himself goes far beyond the land of Canaan. And he will not fail. For that reason he said in Jeremiah chapter 30, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, speaking to the children of Israel, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, meaning that wherever we find the children of Israel, Yahweh will promise, Yahweh has promised to make a full end of all the other people. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. This does not bode well for the Negroes that the so-called traditionalists insist upon defending. If you compromise with Negroes, or if your world grew, your world view if your Weltanschauung is based on compromise with or recognition of any other race of, at all, if you recognize rights for any other race of, at all, then you have already lost this 7,500-year-old war. Our enemies must be dehumanized. But the word of our God, which is in our Bibles, has already done that for us, if only we would read and understand. These niggers, these other races, they're not even people. They don't have rights. They don't have any more rights than your family dog. And your family dog, in most homes that I've ever seen, your family dog does not decide what's for dinner. You let these nigger beasts decide what's for dinner and your kids are on the table. They're not even people. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. You know that I'm loving you 
Take my- 